Welcome to the Clubhouse with Shane Bacon. I am your host, Shane Bacon. This week's episode with Peter Jacobson is brought to you, of course, by Ogio. If you're in need of a golf bag, and I'm sure you are, go to Ogio.com and look at their entire line from stand bag to carry bag, from bulky to light as a feather. Ogio has exactly what you need. Golf bags are the 15th club. And if you don't have the latest technology, it can make your four hours on the golf course unbearable. I have the Cirrus Carry, and I absolutely love it. Lightweight and easy to lug around on the golf course. I can't imagine not using my OGO for 18 holes. Get yourself to OGO.com and make the switch. Trust me, you'll be a happy, happy golfer. And a happy golfer means a better golfer. And also a reminder, and this week especially, to check out Scratch. Scratch is the PGA Tour's venture into making golf a lot of fun for everyone. They make great videos, content throughout the week. It's Twitter.com slash Scratch with a K. This week they're doing Shank Week, of course playing off Shark Week. And I'll say it has been as entertaining as you can imagine. They have a Jack Nicholas shank. They have a Tiger Woods shank. They have 60 shanks in 60 seconds. They're making plenty of video content around this great, great, great idea. So make sure you check out Scratch. I have even posted my own shake and probably the best video I've ever captured of a friend of mine. Uh, well, actually my friend Andrew captured it of my buddy Tim early on in his golfing career, and I posted that, and uh, it got a little bit of play, and I think it'll get a little bit more play today. I'm asking some instructors to uh, to basically critique his golf swing, so check out Scratch, twitter.com slash scratch. An unbelievable week. I mean, I can't even imagine that the Open's already three days past, but I wanted to get somebody on that was there, that was calling the action, and I finally got to, uh, to wrangle up Peter Jacobson, who, of course, is a great addition to the NBC and Golf Channel family, and Peter was there calling the action calling what was going on with Jordan Speed throughout that second nine, the ups and downs, the roller coaster that was that final uh, final six holes. So a lot of fun, of course, Speed now with three majors as we get set for the PGA Championship. I will be on FS1 calling the U.S. Girls Junior Amateur the Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And uh, just check your local listings, or if you check out the Clubhouse newsletter, I have the times in there for each day, but it changes every day. But we'll have our championship on Saturday. Make sure you give that a listen and check that out. I'll be there with Julie Inkster. It's going to be a lot of fun out here in St. Louis. But enough of me. Let's get to Peter. And we now welcome into the Clubhouse seven-time PGA Tour champion, and apparently the only guy that could ever slow Hill Irwin down on the PGA Tour champions. Of course, Peter Jacobson, a big part of the Golf Channel and NBC coverage, including a great job at the Open Championship. Peter, have you finally come down from Sunday at Burkdale yet? I, Shane, I quite honestly, I haven't. Uh, I know it sounds crazy. I'm just sitting in the tower like you do talking about golf, but I was as much a spectator as anybody else watching what happened to Jordan and Kuchar on 13, and then what subsequently happened as Spieth ran to the title, it was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. I mean, playing, broadcasting, the whole spectacle that was the 13th, the, the, the time that it took, um, the, the walking between the trucks, I mean, the cameras following them, it has to be, I would say it's one of the most iconic images in golf history, but it had to have been one of the more entertaining things to be a part of in your broadcasting career. Without a doubt, it was the most incredible thing I've ever seen as a golfer. I've been doing this for 40 years. I've been playing, I've been broadcasting, I've been watching, I've been on the other end of it. It, it was the most incredible thing to see bad shots, I mean horrible shots, well, actually just one, that tee <laughs> shot that, that, that Jordan hit, but it almost seemed like it was it was a series of shots that got him over there. Actually, it was a, a bad tee ball, then a 
unplayable lie, which took him literally 150 yards off the fairway. And then to see him hit a great recovery shot up by the green, then a fabulous pitch and a gutty putt. And then to see him go birdie, eagle, birdie, birdie to close the door. Shane, it's the greatest reset. It's the greatest comeback or the greatest uh, emotional change I've ever seen in competition in golf. It was to say that 98% of all other golf professionals on tour would have melted and collapsed and gone away uh, is probably probably underestimating. It might have been 99.9%. <laughs> the only people I could see readjust and reset would have been Spieth, obviously, Nicholas, maybe Tiger Woods, maybe Trevino. But other than that, going from a bad tee shot like Jordan hit to almost making a hole in one on 14 and then making the eagle at 15, I don't know if, if but for a handful of players in the history of the game, that would have happened. You know, a friend of mine, DJ, asked me following all of that. He said, a buddy asked him, if the ball would have gone down on 14 for a hole-in-one, would it have been the best golf shot in the history of golf? Considering the, the situation, you know, I mean, he, like you said, he was melting down, he makes this great bogey, but it was still a bogey, and now he's losing. I mean, is that would that have been the greatest shot ever if he'd have knocked it in for a one on 14 following the spectacle that was 13? It would have been easily the greatest comeback. As we say, we always give an award out for uh, uh, the worst shot followed by the best shot. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've seen great shots followed by horrible shots. Uh, we don't ever want to be a part of those, but yeah, seeing that, seeing that the Kuchar hit a beautiful tee shot, beautiful iron on on 13, and almost made his putt. Uh, by the way, I think if Kuchar had made his putt, if that birdie had gone down, and now Jordan's facing that six eight footer to lose only two, we might have seen a different outcome. We might see Matt Kuchar right now holding the Clara Jug. The reason I say that is when Matt missed his putt and Jordan made that very, very gutty putt for bogey, I think that was an up I think that was an that was an up uplift for him. I think that was such a momentum saver that it kind of clicked in his brain, okay, I'm still in this thing. I hit a horrible shot, but I'm still alive. I'm one back and I'm gonna go get it. So, yeah, I would say that if that ball had gone in for a one at 14, probably would have been the greatest comeback shot in the history of the game. Well, I know that Twitter would have broke, that's for sure. One of, one of the best things about being on TV during these moments, and people, I don't know if they totally understand this at home, is during commercial breaks, the chatter that's going on, what were y'all com y'all's commercial breaks like as all of this is happening? Because you had to have been conversing back and forth going, what is happening? <laughs> what is happening right now? We, uh, Roger Malpe was assigned that final round coverage to Jordan Spieth, and David Faraday was assigned to Kuchar. So when the tee shot left, Malpe said, this is so far right, I, I can't believe it. And it went over that huge sand dune, and for anybody that's been at Burkdale that knows the 13th hole, from the middle of the fairway where Kuchar was over to that big sand dune, 
is about 80, maybe 100 yards. And then down over that sand dune to where Jordan dropped his ball on the driving range was probably another 75 yards. So we're talking a full five iron between Spieth and Kucher at that point. Maltby couldn't get over the hill because of the sand dune, the gorse. There were so many people there. So he really couldn't see what was going on. So the producer, Tommy Roy, said, look, guys, this is up to you and Danny, Peter and Dan Hicks and Johnny Miller to call this. And while Jordan was running around directing traffic, and I said on the air, I haven't seen this this much arm waving since my plane landed at Manchester on Monday. <laughs> but there were spectators and there were marshals and there was Michael Greller and Jordan waving arms trying to find a line of a line of play, trying to get people to move, trying to figure out where to drop on those quip on the range between the equipment vans because he has to drop it first and then take relief. We we went to commercial I think twice during that time, and you know from doing TV that when you're when you're in commercial, we we talk about the upcoming shot, we talk about all the players and the momentum shifts. We were all literally speechless. We didn't know where to go or what to do. And the best thing about Tommy Roy, the, the, the producer at NBC Golf Channel, was, as he said, guys, let this play. And I know you hear that all the time in your ear. This, the, the golf fans at home want to hear from Jordan. They want to hear from Michael. They want to hear from the officials. So the best thing we did was just basically shut up. Yeah, just laying out sometimes is the best answer in those situations because, yeah, like you, you said, you don't know what to say. You, you don't know what to say. I was, I, I, it was my hole, and as, as you know, in television, you can never get in trouble for saying nothing. And in that situation, TV is a visual medium. So quite honestly, the shots were beautiful. You're looking down on Burkdale, the 13th hole. You've got sand hills. You've got gorse. You've got bunkers. You've got cooch in the fairway. Spieth on the other side of the sand dunes. It it was a it was a novel. It was a it was a book that was that was uh, unfolding in front of us. And the best thing to do was just let it all play out. And and that's what we did. We tried to you try to give context to the situation. And I and you're not you can't prepare for that as you know. You just have to let it play and try to add sensible comments whenever it's needed. Well, the interesting thing I think about all, the entire Sunday, starting on the first hole, I mean, Spieth hits that tee shot. He thought it was perfect. It's in the high rough. You could hear him say that was crap to Michael Griller, and Michael's kind of telling him to get over it. You know, you're coming off Brandon Gray, 62 on Saturday. We have Dustin Johnson, Hideki Matsuyama, Rory, all chasing, you know, kind of the golden boy in Jordan Spieth. But what I thought was so interesting was starting on that very first hole, the entire day, and this is no knock to Matt Kuchar, but the entire day was watching Jordan Spieth battle himself more than it was Jordan Spieth battling anyone else. And I can't think of the last time I watched a golf event, a golf championship, and it was player versus themselves, and the player emerged. Most of the time they get beaten down. Can you think of a time that that's happened where the player was literally, you can see the, you know, the, the, the insides moving in his head, and he's able to, to rise above that? I said before the round started that if Jordan could get through the first six holes unscathed and 
kind of feeling good about his game. I think I said I thought it was his to win. Well, as it turns out, he comes out with three bogeys in four holes. He made a very nice putt for birdie on five. But I think the key to the final round, other than all that we've been talking about with 13, was the sixth hole. The sixth hole is a converted par five, dogleg to the right, played as the most difficult hole all week. I think it averaged like .7, almost three-quarters of a stroke over par for the week. He got up and hit a di- he hit a diving hook into the crowd, which, as you know, on a dogleg right, lengthens the second shot significantly. I believe he had something like 250 yards out of the trampled-down rough. Malpe was uh, right there, and he said, he said, this is a decent lie, but it's, it's matted in the sand dunes and the grass. And he said, wow, if Spieth can get this anywhere near the green, it's going to be a great shot. Well, he hit a – he did that. He put a really good shot up there, probably 30 yards to the right and short of the green. And the next shot he hit within a foot and a half. It was an incredible pitch shot. And that's what we're starting to see from Jordan. Kind of like Phil, kind of like Tiger and Jack Nicklaus and the great players over the years is their recovery game saves them. The short game, the chance that they have to make bogey is diminished because they're pitching, bunker play, and just the intestinal fortitude to make par is incredible. And I think that sixth hole, that up and down, and that par four he made on six was really the thing that righted the ship. Now we go to 13 and we talk about what happened there. So there were a couple of instances where, where Spieth really showed me a lot. Was Spieth who you said a bag full of savvy about? Because that was like the line of the open. Yeah, I did say that. <laughs> that was the line of the open? I loved it. I loved it. I, I wrote oh. it on Twitter. A bag of savvy was, was unbelievable. It, it it really encapsulates Jordan Spieth. I mean, you you know, we, we talk so much about the players that overpower the golf course. You know, the Dustins and the, and the Brooks Kepkas and the Rorys and the Jason Days. And historically, those are the guys that have been the dominant players of their era. I mean, Arnie beat it. Jack beat it. Tiger, of course, was was incredibly long compared to everybody else. Jordan's not that player necessarily, and I just think that we're moving into an era where if you're the most, if you're the strongest player between your ears, that's how you can dominate. And I feel like that's what we see with Jordan Spieth. You mentioned some legends. Is there a player that you see Jordan Spieth the, the easiest person to compare to Jordan Spieth historically? Yeah, the players I mentioned, I uh, was very lucky to have had the chance when I came on tour in 77 Jack was still playing still pretty dominant we go back all the way to 86 when Jack won the Masters I was in my eighth or ninth year on tour and at that point Jack we used to say don't don't antagonize Jack let a sleeping bear lay because we all knew that when Jack got a fire lit under him he would come out even even in mid 40s late 40s he'd still kick everybody's behind. So I would say Nicholas was, was incredibly strong mentally, but the guy that, that I, I just always go back to is tiger. Tiger was not the best driver in the game. He was not the best iron player, but he probably was in the top five of short game. Mickelson's probably that that guy, he's probably the most impressive short game player I've ever seen because Phil probably is one of the wildest drivers. 
and uh, he's not an accurate he's not an accurate driver, not an accurate iron player. But it doesn't matter because because his short game is so good. But I would say the two greatest players in the history of the game, Jack and Tiger, right now, Spieth is starting to show and he's starting to emerge as one of the headiest players in the history of the game. He's 23 years old. He's won three legs of the Grand Slam. And I guess, I guess, as I said in the telecast, he's got a bag full of savvy. His 15th club is savvy. How, how he thinks about the game, how he prepares, how he approaches, and how he succeeds. It's, it's just so impressive to me. And Peter, something else, I mean, another 15th club he has in his bag, or I guess carrying his bag, is Michael Griller. I mean, you know, I mentioned that thing on the first hole, Michael telling him to forget about it, you know, going through the whole 13th hole. It just seems like Griller is the perfect fit for Jordan Spieth. How important is it, you know, throughout your career as a PGA Tour player and even PGA Tour champions, how important is it to find that caddy that you think gets you as much as you get yourself? I certainly never won tournaments like Spieth or Nicholas or any of the guys, but I, I think I had a caddy for 20 years who was as good as anybody on tour, and I'm talking about Mike Cowan, Fluff, who's now on Furyk's bag. He left my bag to go to work for Tiger, and he worked for Tiger for two years, and we all know we all know uh, they won the Masters in record fashion with, with Fluff on the bag. There are a lot of players that can't stand a caddy calling them out. And I, I was never that player. I can't tell you the number of times that I'd be leading or in contention, hit a bad shot and start pissing and moaning, getting upset. And fluff would say to me, Hey, Hey, we can walk in right now. You choose to do this. So get your head out of your backside and let's go get this up and down and go win this golf tournament. And that type of reality and, and, and uh, uh, gut check is what you need. That's what Michael gives to Jordan Spieth. That's what Angelo gave to Jack. That's what Herman Mitchell gave to Lee Trevino. Michael Carrick gave to Tom Kite. Bruce Edwards gave to Tom Watson. And I think when you look at great player-caddy relationships over the years, that is a key part of a player's success. Uh, I would say, I, I know that Mike Cowan only lasted a year and a half with Tiger. And now Tiger has, has, uh, he, he's gone through a few caddies. He had Bruce, or sorry, uh, uh, Steve Williams for a while. Uh, and I'm, I just think it really goes to the player. If the player can handle criticism, I know sometimes when you make a five footer or you win a tournament, you think you're 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 on top of the world. You are until you miss the next three cuts. <laughs> then you're, you're you're back down with your feet on the earth. But I think it speaks also to the reality with how Spieth lives his life, the way his parents raised him, his relationship with his older brother and his younger sister Ellie, who is a special needs child. I, I just think. Jordan is, is he's just an impressive young man, well-rounded, well-grounded, and he understands what's what's important in world in the world and and what is fleeting. Yeah, and I mean it's it's interesting too because he does come off as this kind of all-American guy. You know, Kuchar's a little bit like it too. He comes off as this all shucks all-American guy, but you know deep down 
he is trying to beat Jordan down. And Jordan's doing the same thing to Kuchar. It's interesting. We we have a lot of those guys on tour right now. You know, there's not a lot of the the menacing type of player because I mean, their lives are, let's be honest, their lives are really, really good. But, you know, it, it's fun. I mean, you're watching these guys. They're shaking hands. They're, they're fist bumping on 13. But deep down, you know Jordan Spieth wants to win. Everything he plays in, he wants to beat whoever he's playing up against. And he does it all with that kind of boyish smile on his face. Yes, but he doesn't want to win by taking an unfair advantage of a situation. I could I could give you names, and I'm not going to do it, but through my 40-year career, players that would do anything to get a little bit of an advantage. Uh, jingling change, clearing their, vo- uh, clearing their throat, just doing things to throw a player off. When you watch Kuchar and Spieth on the 13th green, when Spieth walked up and fist-bumped and he apologized to Matt, I honestly believe that he that he felt bad for taking that much time. I think it was close to 25 or maybe even 28 minutes to get that whole situation sorted out. So Jordan and Matt Kuchar are cut from the same cloth. They are they are respectful gentlemen who love the game of golf, and I don't think they have a, a mean bone in their body. They have they have competitive bones, and you bet Mickelson. Uh, Tiger, Nicholas, Palmer, player, all the way through the history of the game, they have that competitive bone. They want to win. I think Spieth and Kuchar have that same bone, but not not at the detriment of their other of their fellow players. I think Jordan, I think uh, Kuchar, I think Fowler, Rory, they want to win, but but not at the cost of their their dignity and their self respect. So you guys have had Stinson Mickelson at Royal True. Now you get the the Jordan uh, the Jordan show at Burkdale. What's been the most fun about broadcasting the Open the last couple of years? The 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 Open or the British Open, it was known for years. Now it's rebranded the Open. Was always my favorite event to play in as a as a competitor because traveling to Europe or Scotland. Tra- traveling to, to to England, playing these legendary golf courses like Burkdale, like Troon, like St Andrews, it was such a change of then change of scenery and a departure from what we know as American golf. You have to learn a different style. You got to keep the ball on the ground. You got to bump and run it. You got to you got to deal with wind and rain and 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 heat and just all kinds of elements. But we, we, there was no way that any of us, when, when we got done with the Mickelson-Stenson match, we were so lucky NBC had secured the contract with the RNA to do the Open last year. We thought we got, gosh, we were so lucky to get that battle. Probably the most, one of the greatest battles ever seen in, in Open Championship history between Phil and Henrik. And then we turn right around and we get Kuchar and Fowler. <laughs> and we get Hao Tong Lee, the... The young, the youngster from China shooting 63, and Brandon Grace shooting 62. It was just, it was such an incredible week of of peak performance, and then top it off with that Sunday match. I just feel like all of us at NBC that had the chance that, to sit in our chairs and watch it and be a part of it were we were just so fortunate and so lucky, and uh, I'm I'm really happy and proud of the the production that NBC does on a weekly basis, but certainly across the pond, uh, away from home, the production team at NBC and Golf Channel is 
really, really professional. How nervous were you when Grace was standing over that short putt for par? What, what, what percentage were you thinking, oh, goodness, I don't want to see him miss this, because there have been these demons about 62 for so many years. Yeah, I actually thought, I, kn- I know Brandon a little bit. I've watched him play. He's a very smart player, and you heard him say afterwards, a shame that he didn't know that he was putting for a, a, a tournament record or a major championship record. He was just trying to put it in to shoot a 62 <laughs> and, 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 and stay that much closer to the lead. So I, I, I did not want to see him miss that putt because that's all we would have talked about. And I just hate that. I hate it when we, we as, as pundits of the game talk about how a player, player failed or choked or didn't do this or didn't do that. So uh, as much as, as much as I, I, I know that it, it, it probably hurt our colleague Johnny Miller, who uh, <laughs> has held that record at the Oakmont for years. Uh, shooting a 62 uh, is, is an amazing thing because I've played in a lot of majors and I know how hard it is. Not only just the golf, the golf courses we play, the venues, the setup, but the emotions attached to playing in a major championship. It was. I was really glad to see Brandon shoot 62. That was. Uh, it, it was time for that. Okay, you got to give us a little behind the scenes with the Johnny sixty three sixty two thing. What what was the did, it, did you guys got talk to him afterwards? Did somebody bring him a, a sixty three cake? Was there any was there any joke or humor that went around it? Because you know this has been kind of his thing for so long. No, it has been his thing, and and if I take off my hat of uh, liking Johnny and and understanding uh, that six that that records are meant to be broken, when you look back at at Oakmont and, and in the past when anybody shot 63 64s and things like that in the US Opens you you should analyze that Oakmont's probably the most difficult golf course in America and don't forget back when Johnny shot that record uh, the ball didn't go as far as it does now so when you look at the shot uh, the irons that the players hit Johnny was hitting routinely 7s 6s 5s and 4s and when you look at the, the way the game is played now, very rarely do you see a, a player hit a four or five iron to a par four. A lot of the shots that we see hit now are with, with gap wedges, pitching wedges, and nine irons. So um, it's, that's why it's impossible, Shane, to compare generations and different eras uh, against each other. It's different. We, when I first came on tour, we used persimmon, real persimmon woods. Nowadays, we use the composite heads, the, the, the metal heads. The shaft technology was nothing like it is now, and golf ball technology nowadays is so far advanced to what it used to be. So I'm not trying to say one's better than the other. All I'm saying is these eras are different. It's so hard to compare. It's like trying to compare the way that John Havlicek and Jerry West played in the NBA with how Russell Westbrook, LeBron James, and Steph Curry play now in the NBA. It's a different level. It's a different game. Uh, and and it's, uh, you just have to appreciate each generation for, for the peak performance that happened uh, within, those, within that era. Of the NBC crew, who is the sneaky funniest person on the crew? Well, the funniest person on the crew is, without a doubt, Faraday. 
and we all know that. But the sneaky, funniest person you'll ever meet is Dan Hicks. Dan Hicks is incredible uh, what he does as the host and the voice of NBC Golf and NBC Sports. Everybody on the crew will tell you that Dan Hicks is the funniest guy on the team. <laughs> but but Rod, but when we're in commercial and we've got Faraday and Maltby and Dan Hicks talking and telling jokes and laughing, it it makes it so enjoyable. As you know, it, as you know, it's so much fun when you're on the air because you're watching the greatest players in the game. I don't care if we're playing Greenbri- Greenbrier, Greensboro. Uh, Pebble Beach or Riviera or the uh, Burkdale. You're watching the greatest players in the game. And then in between commercial, it's so much fun to be with some of the greatest personalities in the game that are funny and they're smart. They're really, really smart. You can't do that job if you're, if you don't love the game, have passion for it and, uh, and are, are, are pretty intelligent about the game as well. I'll give you the big four. I'll give you Jordan. I'll give you Rory, Jason, and Dustin. We're a few weeks away from the PGA Championship. Who are you picking, considering what Jordan just did and the golf course has been pretty friendly to Rory over the years? Well, let's start with DJ. I know DJ's still suffering from that back injury he had when he fell on the stairs at the Masters. So it's always hard to come back from injury. I've had my share of injuries, and and anybody that's played the game a long time knows that it's really hard. Um, Rory's close. He said at the open, he was really close. He still hits those loose shots that, uh, that miss the fairway by 20 or 30 yards. You can't do that at the PGA because that, that thick rough will just, will just take the life right out of you. Um, Jason day, I think is starting to come back. I, I really think that, that Jason is starting to round in shape, but, of those four, I like I like players that play well in streaks, and I think Jordan of those four, Jordan is going to have a great great week. But I'll throw another guy in there that I think could pop up and win his first major. I'd, I'll throw Ricky Fowler in there. I think Ricky is Ricky's close. Ricky, he's always knocking on the door. He's had a very consistent year, and I just have a feeling that Ricky could break through and win at Quail Hollow. Ricky or Hideki, I think, are the two guys I think have a really, really good shot. Hideki's just consistently played well. He's just one of those guys. He's quietly amazing, you know. I mean, I feel like you almost forget yeah. about Matsuyama a lot of the times, and then he's out there and he finishes sixth and fourth and fifth, and you're like, wow, this guy just doesn't finish outside the top ten. Uh, I know you've got to run, so I wanted to ask you one more question. You were in Ten Cup, and I, this is well before I knew you. It was one of my favorite movies ever, and, of course, you were in there. First of all, they need they need to green light ten cup too. I'm so surprised they haven't do it. Which current player would fill your role as the player that's battling the actors if they greenlit ten cup two? I'd say Fowler because uh, Ricky, as I've always said, I think when Arnold Palmer died, I think his spirit went into Ricky. I, I haven't seen anybody since Arnold and maybe Phil Nicholson that is as good with the fans. He's giving. He's kind. And he has fun with it. You see the ads on TV where Ricky's always has a smile on his face and he really enjoys it. So I would say, I would say Ricky. I think Ricky would be my choice as well. You mentioned Mr. Palmer. I know you were super close with Arnold Palmer. So I love asking these questions to people like you who are great storytellers. Give me a great Arnold Palmer story as we go out. 
the first time I met Arnold, and this really gives you an indication of the kind of inclusive person Arnold is. When we think of famous people, we always think of how exclusive they are. Uh, you know, you're, they're untouchable. You can't get anywhere near them. Arnold was my, my hero growing up. And when I first got my card, I qualified for the AT&T back then, the Bing Crosby, on Monday. And I ran out to MPCC, Monterey Peninsula Country Club, to play a few holes before the sunset. So I ran out, and I played the back nine. I played 10, 11, 12, and I cut over on 16 to play the last three in, not realizing Arnold was putting on 15 green. So I got up there. I hit a couple extra tee shots on 16. It's like it's like six, six o'clock at night, sun setting. And around the corner comes Arnold Palmer with his manager, Mark McCormick. <laughs> and I'm standing there on the 16th tee with three or four balls already hitting the fairway. And here comes Arnold. And I felt like two feet tall. I thought, <laughs> I- I've just made a big fool of myself. I've got in front of the king. I'm just a rookie. This is I haven't even played a tournament on tour yet. This is my first one. And Arnold walked up to me, hitched his pants, kind of cocked his head, as we've all seen him do in so many TV and uh, movie reels. He walked right up to me, stuck his hand out, and he said, Hi, I'm Arnold Palmer. Can we join you? (laughs) And that impressed me right there because he could have big-timed me. He could have uh, laid the, Hey, kid, get out of my way. I'm I'm playing through. But he asked me to join him. Uh, or obviously he said, can I join you? When clearly I'd cut in front of him. I played the last three holes with Arnold and Mark, who eventually became my manager for, for 25 years. We played three holes, 16, 17, 18. He shook my hand on 18 and said, Hey, look forward to seeing you again. Let's play sometime. Um, good luck to you in your career. And he walked off. And all these years later, when I had a chance to play with him as my partner in so many tournaments, I think we played, we partnered in maybe 20, 25 tournaments together. And I look back now upon his, after his death, I look back to, to the kind of person he was and the way that he was so generous and kind to everybody in the game, not just fellow tour players, but to complete strangers. So that's a, that's a lesson that will live on and on with, uh, with Arnie and his foundation, the Arnie's Army Charitable Foundation. So um, that's probably the best Arnie story I could leave you leave you with, Shane. I like that. What did he think about your impersonation of his golf swing? Because you're you're famous for being so good at these. Did, did he think you did a good job with it? Yeah, he laughed the first time I ever did it. <laughs> I, I asked him if I could do an impression of him. I was gosh, I was twenty three or four, and he went, "Well, sure, go ahead and do it." So I did it, and all the gyrations and the head thing and everything and. And when I got done, I walked over to him like, oh, my God, is he going to punch me in the face? He said, that was pretty good. And he, that, that was it. So I did it. Gosh, I must have done, done 200 of those right. throughout my career. Yeah. Uh, so so fun. I, you, you're, you nail it. I mean, it's unbelievable. I appreciate you. I appreciate you taking the time. You guys did an unbelievable week. You've got a lot to live up to next year, though. A bag full of savvy is your pedestal now. you got to get. We got to find a line better than that for the Open in 2018. You're, well, you're right. I'll start working on it right now. <laughs> start brainstorming. Well, I appreciate it. Peter Jacobson, <laughs> thanks so much. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll catch up with you soon. All the best, Shane. We'll talk to you soon. It looks like I'm a wreck. It's in the hole. It's in the hole. Well, that will do it for this week's Clubhouse podcast. Many thanks to Peter Jacobson, one of my favorite guys in golf. Every time I see him, he puts a smile on my face. I think that's probably universally correct. There's not many people 
that don't smile when Peter is around. Many thanks to Ogio. I've told you guys plenty of times to check out Ogio.com, and there's a decent chance over the next week or so I'm going to have a discount code for you. That discount code is going to allow you to save a little bit of dough as you order your Ogio travel bag and golf bag and backpack and all of the things you need. When I'm traveling, as I am a lot this summer, and there's somebody in front of me with an Ogio backpack on, which happens more often than not, I always kind of smile at them. I don't say anything. I don't want to be that weirdo, but I do just smile. I'm like, that guy gets it, or that lady gets it. And, uh, and I just love having my, my renegade Ogio backpack with me. Uh, just a reminder, check out Scratch, twitter.com slash scratch. Especially this week, Shank Week has been a lot of fun. It's the Canadian Open this week. We have the U.S. Girls Junior on FS1. Make sure you check that out Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And then I will actually be home for a week. So I'm hoping next week I can knock out a couple of Clubhouse podcasts. I have some guests that I'm excited about having that I've been waiting to have on, and I'll be back in my studio. And then we roll on here at Fox. We get U.S. Women's Amateur and then the U.S. Amateur back-to-back in San Diego and in Los Angeles. So that's exciting. Hope you guys have a great week. Hope you guys get out and play some golf this weekend. It's going to be a great weekend to golf. The Canadian Open's always fun, but you got to get it in now because we got majors coming up and then we got the playoffs. So it is going to roll through, and you're going to be stuck to your couch for most of the rest of the summer. So get out this weekend, get a couple of rounds in, and make a couple of birdies. <laughs>